out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Chris Ty, one-time member of the indie band Coda. And um, they've got a slight Sarah Record connection. And they do appear in the Michael White book, which is titled Pop Kiss as well. Um, and they were on Matt's label, uh, Shinkansa Recordings. And um, Shifty Disco as well, I do believe. Anyway, look, you're going to find out much more about Chris and the band and his musical journey in the next 50 minutes, possibly. I'm not counting. Anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. And um, yes, I edit my bit out where I babble on, and he talks about his. Anyway, Chris, it's over to you. I was born in '67, uh, so you know I was a child of the the summer of love. Yes. My, yeah, my my sort of, my uh, parents. I went to see Jimi Hendrix and the the Walker Brothers while my mum was like pregnant. So, so so I have heard Jimi Hendrix and the Walker Brothers through the through the wall of the womb. <laughs> which yes. This which, is great. Which, which sort of might have affected the kind of music that I liked when I eventually started uh, growing up. But that was some. Well, we did. We didn't have an awful lot of records like in the house when when like, I was a kid. I mean, so, so neither of my parents were particularly musical. Um, but what they did have was quite qu- quite effective to me. Really, um, there were no Beatles records like in the house, for instance. Uh, mm. my, no, my my dad was a big. Um, Rolling Stones fan, and like my mum preferred Cliff. So, and there was a time I think 1976, Christmas 1976. My dad got a copy of of like Abba's Arrival album as a as a Christmas present. Is that the one with the and helicopter on the front? That is the one with the helicopter. Yeah, yeah the one that's got that Dancing one Queen on it, Knowing Me, Knowing You, Plenty. Of I am. Is it? I am the classes. Tiger as well, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that funnily enough, that was. The most important song for me, like on the album, because I was only about eight or nine at the time, and and this like, Abba album was probably the first real pop album that had existed in in my house and therefore in in my life at the time. And so, and I liked Dancing Queen the way that everyone did, like even if they were very young, it's just a song that appeals to everybody. Yeah. But but what what I really liked about that album was it had this widespread of sound on it you had dancing queen's disco song like knowing me knowing you this really sad song and then there was a song about being a tiger like going to a city eating people and like when you okay like i kind of recognize that that's metaphorical now but like when you're about eight you think great she's singing a song about being a tiger eating people and and then like this is a pop group and they're singing about this this sort of thing so that that that's like that hit me hard, really. I got, I got very excited about it. Well, that. absolutely. Did there was another album. track on that album about the, um, kissing the teacher? Yeah, yeah. The first track was like, When I Kissed the Teacher. When but, I Kissed the Teacher. Yeah. Well, I just want to get away with that now. No. And, and then, then obviously the police had another one, stand, Don't Stand So Close to well, Me. Of course, Actually, yeah, most yeah. of the songs of the 60s and 70s would be bad. bad <laughs> yeah. people, just, people wouldn't be yeah. able to get them get in the right headspace to, to sing or write those songs because you just no. it would just be like, no, that's that's wrong. Because there was a time I remember when I was growing up, you know, bands used to sort of talk in a very loose way when they were being interviewed, mostly on the, I don't know, Old Grey Whistle Test or various mm. programmes. And they'd and people say, oh, why did you get in the music? And they go, oh, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I kind of, I remember sort of, there was a time when I thought, God, you don't hear that phrase anymore, do you? Someone must have said, don't say that anymore. Not yeah. say yeah. sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Just say it was because you liked entertaining lovely people. Um, but it wasn't yeah. like those three things. Yes, yeah, so I have to say that was that was not the reason why I got into indie pop. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but your parents, though, I mean, okay, they didn't run into the Beatles, they were into Stones, but they went, oh, you know, Jimi Hendrix is on, crazy stuff, let's go and see this man. And, and oh, by yeah. the way, the Walker Brothers, not a bad support band, I guess. Yeah. Um, for one pound and fifty p. Um, so it, yes, how did, it, how did it, it probably was that, that, that much <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, it was probably Rod Stewart was supporting. You know, mm. well, I think I think Hendrix was actually supporting the Walker Brothers. I think the Walker Brothers were the like the headline act on that tour. Whereabouts and was this? That was in 
Chesterfield. I can't remember the exact sort of location where it was. It's a, a lot of venue that's like no longer exists on the ballroom or other. Yeah. Like, I did find a poster for it a couple of years ago. I would have been so, very excited by that. So yeah. yeah, so that that was that a bit of a surprise when you look back on it that suddenly they went, yes, we're going to go and see the Walker Brothers and Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, that, I didn't actually find out about it until about 10 or so years ago. My, my sort of parents knew that I was really into music and they, you know, and they knew by this point that I was into 60s music, but they didn't have, you know, I just didn't think to... Uh, they casually, yeah. just casually said, oh, yeah. yes, that, oh, yeah. that Mr. Hendrix. We saw the Walker Brothers once. That Jimi Hendrix was on with him. <laughs> oh, yeah, he wants Jimi Hendrix was on. Oh, yeah, he was quite good, wasn't he? <laughs> and I was like, what? What? You never told me this. <laughs> uh, yes, God, that's amazing. Yes, so that's that's very good. So when, when did you start thinking about playing an instrument or, or sort of making music? Or was this something that came along much later? Uh, that That... Came along a lot later, I think. My, my sort of sister took her guitar lessons. She was about four years younger than a lot I was. But I found that a little difficult to, to do because I've got quite small hands. So I've got a bit of noise trying to learn classical guitar because the, uh, the neck was a bit too big. So that's uh, so why I kind of gave up trying to, to play anything, really, until my 20s. Uh, up until then, I was a consumer of music should we say a fairly avid one and, yes. and a, so was was and the, a regular was gig the, goer as well was the 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 classic indie world of the 80s was that something that you picked up on straight away um i think so yeah well the the uh, the way that it happened was was some i started getting into music in like the late uh, the late 60s no late <laughs> 70s with with that like abba album and, and like my dad had got the the rolling stones roll gold compilation album the the, the following year yes. which got me really into the 60s stone stuff but then in 1979 synth pop happened like gary newman came along and there were like other groups like omd human league and i really really like that so that was the first kind of music that was not of my parents generation say that i really really liked yeah so so as a result of that i i uh, particularly like the, the the human league who were a fairly local band to me they were from sheffield I was from Chesterfield that was literally 10 minutes away like, on the train. So they were a very local band to me. And that meant that I got into other local Sheffield bands like, as well. And like there were other sort of synth bands around Sheffield around that time, such as Vice Versa, who eventually became the ABC. But, but um, so because I liked that sort of Sheffield bands, I also started hearing bands like Cabaret Voltaire that were right. also from that area, but were a bit more strange. And I found out, oh, those are the kind of bands you'll hear on this radio show by this man called John Peel. He plays all that weird stuff. Yes. And as a result of that, I started listening to, to John Peel in my mid-teens, the way that I think pretty much everyone in my generation that liked, yes. this is that true. liked alternative music did. And that, yeah, that just um, well, allowed me to hear all the the classic sort of peel bands like the so, four. Like, so, what was your first gig? So, what it. was your first gig you went to? Oh, amazingly yeah. enough, the first gig that I ever went to that was not like school bands was was the Membranes. Oh, good, good. I'm <laughs> aware of them. Oh, John Robb's band. Yeah, this was oh, around the time they were on Creation. I think they just, they just released that album, sort of Gift of Life, and like they were doing a tour of like small, small provincial towns, and they played in what I think was a wine bar in, <laughs> in Chesterfield, just the, at the basement. Right. I think I was about 16, 17 or something like at the time, and um, yeah, and... I'd like already got a couple of Membranes records. I've got uh, Spike Milligan's tape recorder, their classic single. Yes. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I thought, okay, I'm going to go and see a band. I'm going to go to see the Membranes at a wine bar in, in Chesterfield, surrounded are. by all these slightly scary punks when I'm a kind of geeky 16-year-old. Um, yes, absolutely. And, and yeah, so... so, so like rather than my first gig being, oh, like I went to see the you know, the Bay City Rollers with my mum and dad. It's like I went to see the membranes in the dingy wine bar. So uh, <laughs> that's that's what set me off on them seeking out 
crummy small gigs really yeah and, and just not really wanting to see sort of large size arena shows which, are, which i've you know, which i've very rarely gone to so when you hit 16 which was probably about 1983 that was the year of the smiths did did indie pop have a big influence on your life or did it just pass you by um well when the smiths came along uh yeah they made a pretty big impression on me yeah, I, I really, really liked the Smiths for like several years. Obviously, it's quite difficult to like them now because of Morris's uh, twists and turns into the recent years. But uh, <laughs> well, like around that time, it, yeah, they, yes. they were just like very, very important bands. I mean, given that I'd been really into electronic music, the fact that the Smiths came along and they were like very, very defiantly all electronic, they would not have any synthesizer. They were total guitar bands. They were probably the first sort of total guitar band that I really, really liked. And that kind of set me off onto sort of liking a lot of like other uh, guitar-based bands, bands like Orange Juice and that, that, that I'd not bothered listening to before, but that would get mentioned in the same breath as the Smiths. Yeah. And yeah. And so I, start, so I started getting much more into guitar music and then in like 1985, 1986, that whole kind of C86 scene came along and it was just exactly what I wanted to hear at like that time. So I was like really, really into that stuff. Well, I know. It, it, it did sort of explode, didn't it? I mean, I think, mm. you know, in that slightly sort of simplistic way, I love the simplistic way. And, um, you know, it was like, you know, you had that punk, then post-punk and then, for me, you know, the Smiths coming along, you know, opened that chapter for indie pop and sort of from 83 to 87, it was definitely yeah. happening. And then when they broke up, you know, ecstasy came along and then there was kind of a new yeah. chapter for 16 to 18 year olds who, you know, every 16 to 18 year old want their own scene and they don't really want to sort of worry about what, what yeah. the older 20 somethings are talking about and reminiscing, they want their own band. So, and then, yeah, you had the rave culture and then you had grunge come. Yeah you know things did yeah. really really quickly at that stage so um so were you forming and, and sort of thinking about being in a band at then at that stage um not in the 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 c86 era like at all no because i was as a fanzine editor around that time so 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 i was geared more towards writing about music than actually making music i i sort of didn't start trying to write songs or trying to play i think probably until about 1990 time right i think and then a lot of that was just sort of recording stuff in my bedroom on a little tape recorder with uh, with a you know, guitar that sort of didn't have a, a neck that was too fat for me to get my hands around yes and, yeah. well, that's good like i'm a, glad because like i I had a go and I just thought, God, I'm hopeless. This is never going to happen. I'll just put a record on yeah. instead, which is a bit yeah. disappointing, isn't it? It's a bit pathetic. So, um, yes. Mm -hmm. So then when, when sort of things like, you know, the 4AD label, of which, you know, had people like Dead Can Dance and the Copter Twins, yeah. and Throw Muses and the Pixies and all that kind of scene, were you kind of still kind of excited and consuming music with great, with great um, gusto? Uh, well... 4AD bands, I, I really love those as well. The, the Cocteau Twins, I can remember hearing John Peel playing the first thing they ever put, put out. I think Speak No Evil, I think that was a, a single. Right. I, I can remember him like playing that and it sounded to me because of its noise guitar, drum machine, weird vocals style, it, it sounded like like a lot of the the goth music that i'd quite liked around that time as well yeah like, uh, like sort of the early sisters of mercy the march violets that were also bands that had noisy guitars drum machines and sort of slightly weird vocals so and did you so did you I, get into people like the cult and the cure and the mission and bands like that um, um i like the cure uh the cult and the mission were a bit too rock for me to be honest i like, I like sisters of mercy but only when they had like drum machines going. Like yeah. the soonest, sort of soon as they kind of split in half, didn't they? There was a, a lot of the Andrew Eldritch Sisters of Mercy with the uh, the meatloaf Jim Steinman sound and like the mission coming out the other side. I, did, I didn't really like either of those very much. No, but, I didn't. I didn't. Um, yeah, I shouldn't confess, but I didn't realise that Jim Steinman production song was. Um, I hadn't sort of taken. Yes, I'd heard the song, but I hadn't realised the Jim Steinman connection until he died, and I went, "Oh, yeah. that's interesting." I didn't realise where are they now. But um, well, not <laughs> yeah. Jim Steinman, obviously, but yeah. the other members. Yes, weird. Uh, yes, and did you talking of Sheffield? Were you into bands like 
the 1000 violins did they yes, come a lot they they did though they kind of arrived a little later for me I, I think i didn't really hear them until about 1986 right it was um when, when they'd already put out quite a few singles they were a band name that i'd heard i'd heard the name and i knew that they were famous for writing songs with like really long convoluted titles yes like, um but but i didn't actually hear them until relatively late and yeah i really liked them and then the original singer left about a year after i started liking them and they got the new singer in and yeah that's was right. good at that point then they broke up and then the main guy went and formed the band called the dylan dylan's yeah. yes who were um, still quite i never great. really cared for them very much no, no. they were okay so then what happened during your your sort of the early 90s to the brit pop period well at so at that point i was i was writing fanzines still i was i was living in in like manchester in the the c86 like era so oh, were you a student in manchester i was a student yes did yeah. you go to the the lads club and have a photograph taken i didn't go to the salford lads club for near enough now <laughs> Yes. It never occurred to me to actually do that until like, everyone else started doing it. And I thought, well, yeah, why didn't I do that? I've got friends <laughs> in Salford. But I just never did it, no. No. But, um, yeah, once, once I finished uni, I moved down to Oxford because I got offered a, a job there. That was the only reason. You know, there wasn't any particular like, other reason for me to move down there. So, so because I had moved to a, a city where I didn't know people, I just carried on doing fanzines down there as a means of, of like introducing myself to, uh, to people really yes, as much as anything and free, else and free cds and entry to gigs i mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> didn't work that way back then i'm afraid I, didn't I it pay to get into everything yeah yeah not even a yeah, free like, cd not even a, well i well i get sent demo tapes this was around the time when when people would still send demo tapes i think in the early 90s no it's just but, mp3s it's just indeed like, yeah yeah just like like here's a link it's yeah, like a watermark link if you send it to anyone else then it will wipe their entire hard drive yeah yes that was just an urban myth though wasn't it that if you sort of did something that <laughs> yeah wipe, it would wipe you home. but it, it probably worked actually yeah so then you yeah. were working in oxford which was mm. famous for what was it famous for during that period was it radiohead well, well, around the time when I moved down to Oxford, this was before the era of, of like Radiohead, Supergrass. So this was when Oxford was most known for bands like Tallulah Gosh and the Razor Cuts. Oh my so, God! Yeah, Amelia Fletcher. Yeah, so, she is. Literally, yeah. I mean, I was going to say she should have she should have an OBE, but she probably. I think she's got one actually, or CBE. <laughs> she's got something for her yeah, academic. Think, yeah. It's for her academic work at the University of East Anglia, which is just yeah, it's like for, for, for her non-musical work. But so I'd, I'd like to think that she's got it for, for, for her music too. Yes, but, I think uh, she's the most qualified uh, sort of indie singer, songwriter of all time, actually. Yeah. Yes. Professor yeah, well, Fletcher. Indeed. Indeed, yeah. yeah well, actually, Peter Momchilov, who was like Tilly Lagosha's guitarist, is like head of philosophy on at the Oxford University Press. <laughs> right. Yes, so, that's true, yeah, actually, so. yeah. I know the guy from um, Big Flame. He's a professor in Belfast of architecture. So um, there's quite yeah, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yes, I know. I'm, I'm full of indie gossip. Oh, that's so, true. Because, I mean, Big Flame were one of my favourite bands at that time. Oops. That's okay. Yeah. So, yes. So, so then working in Oxford, when did, it, when did things start to happen? Well, that was probably, I think, around the mid '90s. I think when when things started sort of taking off there, because I, I remember the 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 very early days of of, of like Radiohead and uh, Supergrass. Because some like back when Radiohead were called like on a Friday, and they were sort of more of a Blur type band around then. Because so I was at the gig where they got signed because they. The like support band for for that gig was actually a, a band that had some of my friends in them. So I'd gone along to support my friends and sort of turned up at this gig, and there were all these like A and R men there who actually were still wearing things like nineteen seventies satin jackets, like you think old fashioned record company people would actually wear. There were people wearing that, and it turned out they had all gone to see it on a Friday because like EMI were 
were like interested and i think there may have been other labels interested as well yeah yeah and yeah they came on and like played this stuff that sounded like the first blur album they were quite baggy at like that time had kaleidoscopes projected over them wow. um yeah and um also around that time i saw what i think was like supergrass's second gig when they were still called uh, Theodore Supergrass, that was their original name. Yes. But, uh, yeah, of course, I think two of the guys out of Supergrass had been in a band called The Jennifers, who I'd seen a couple of times as well. They were like a teen band. They're kind of like, I suppose the closest Oxford came to it to McFly or something. <laughs> kind of like teen indie band. Nice. So, yeah, so, so like around that time, obviously, yeah, you you got to the radio had got sort of picked up by EMI and then like Supercrass got picked up shortly afterwards. And then things, yeah, things really started sort of taking off then. That was when we got sort of more in the way of decent sized venues and like sort of local music press as well. There's uh, a, a lot of local music paper that was called Curfew, which nice. uh, I used to write, you know, used to write to reviews for. Um, yeah. So was well, the that was when band... Oxford had enough stuff to, to write yeah. a lot of reviews about. It's tricky now, isn't it? But um, so when, when, did your, when did your band start to sort of form and, and come together? My band formed in 1996, I think. It was late 96, early 97. Um, what had happened was a, a friend of mine who, who was another person who'd just been recording songs in his bedroom for like several years, but was quite... Uh, proficient at it he had a four track and i knew how to record things so it sounded right he just decided i'm going to form a band and like the way that i'm going to do it is like i'm going to ask around and like absolutely everybody who i know who owns or can play some kind of musical instrument i'm going to ask if they want to be in my band so like one day yeah and and so he knew that i had i had a guitar and I had a little synthesizer, like even though I couldn't play them particularly well, but I got instruments and I was a music writer. So like one day I got a little note through my letterbox saying like, do you want to join my band? And so about, I think there were six of us at the time, like originally, all sort of met up in this guy's bedroom. He's like, he's like student flat. Was this with, so there's, there's Joe, John, Stephen, yourself. Yes. And there were two foot, there were two other members, like originally, um, whose names I cannot remember, to be honest. There was, uh, it's a cruel world, isn't it? It is, it is. There was, there was another guy that, that like, played keyboards, um, and he turned up for our first three or four rehearsals, and then I think halfway through the, the fourth rehearsal, we just finished a song, and he just said, I'm going to go down and watch TV now. <laughs> and then just left the room and went, just, just and like went down to watch telly and like never came back. But um, <laughs> we had a, a lot of violin player. Too. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I, I cannot remember what her name was, but um, I, I think she was American or a Canadian. And she, she lasted as long as like, our first set of demos. I can kind of hear her in the, the background sawing away. Nice. On, until some of our very early uh, like recordings. But uh, she eventually left the band to join a, a death metal group. It's like she got an offer from them and they, they, seem, to, they seem to be doing a bit better than us. So, right. Yeah. So, so that we were abandoned in favour of death metal. Yeah, that's quite cruel. But um, yeah. so then as, did the sound come together quite quickly? Well, well, when we first started, most of the songs were, were like Joe's songs. And so Joe had some fairly well thought out ideas about what he wanted the, the songs to actually sound like, even though he was you know, willing for us to make embellishments to them. So, yeah, it came together reasonably quickly because the person that was writing most of the songs had fairly strong ideas like already about what they were going to sound like. like as... As we went on, once we got to the point of actually putting out records, we started to work a lot more collaboratively on the arrangement. So, like some of the songs ended up sounding like nothing like their authors wanted them to sound. So, yeah, because yeah, so like, so like originally it came together fairly quickly. Because I remember Shifty Disco Records. I seem to remember sort of. I might have even got a sort of centre sort of 
I don't know, some sort of, you know, review copy of a band, but I can't remember which one it was, actually. The Panda Gang, that was it, probably. I think they had a single out on Shifty Disco. I, like, I only really remember the first year of, like, Shifty Disco, because they put a single out every month. We were the, I think, That's... the ninth one of the first year. That's right. It all sounded really beautiful, didn't it? And such a nice idea and full of optimism and happiness, as you do. Yeah. But, uh, you... I, some of the results were a little inconsistent, like I felt. Um, so Oxford had a lot of lot of up-and-coming bands around that time, but I have to admit, I didn't like an awful lot of them. No. So with the, with Shifted, your, your single came out, this was in 1997, and this yeah. was Simple and absent-minded wasn't it yes now simple now i was into prog rock mainly because my brother was in the 70s yeah. so i followed him and a lot of their out songs lasted a long time incredibly long topographic oceans was six was it four songs on four sides of double Four songs yeah about like 18 minutes each side so yeah. what how did you manage to write a song which was your first single or your first kind of yeah your a side and it's eight minutes that's amazing eight minutes 45 to be <laughs> to be exact um yeah the, the the demo was only six and a half minutes it just got longer and longer as it went on um we were quite fond of grooves, basically, is like what had happened. We'd, we had sort of several songs around that time where Joe would just set up a rhythm on the, the, the drum machine and sort of rather than have it programmed, he would just set up a, like, a rhythm loop and we'd just play along and then he'd decide when it was going to finish by just turning it off. So, so, so some of our early material was sort of very much worked up with us just like, I hate to say jamming because we were, we were very against the, the the concept of being a jam band. A jam but, sort of look, but, but sort of looking back on it now, we were essentially jamming on grooves on some of our early songs. And it was very much a case of we're going to carry on doing it till it sounds like a natural point for it to end. And yeah, and Simple just kept sort of getting longer and longer until it reached a natural point about eight minutes 45 where we thought that's how long it's, it's going to be. Like we didn't actually set out to uh, specifically write a lot of song that was really long. I mean, like a lot of our other songs around that time went odd a bit as well. Nice. It's quite rare for us to have a single that was less than five minutes long. So with, so, the, with that single, they had a thousand printed up. Did, um, yeah. did you get much feedback on that? Um, well, well, it got onto Radio 1, for instance. Steve, Steve Lamack had played it as like unsigned band of the week. Um, I got phoned up at work by, by sort of record companies wanting to uh, talk to our manager, which we didn't have. We didn't have a yeah. manager. So, um, yeah. And, um, so it did get quite a lot of encouraging feedback. We, we were, I would say, briefly hyped. And sort of partly because like, there were several other Oxford bands around that time that were getting hyped. So there was a scene building and mm. like, the music press like, always loves its little scenes. So, so we we were kind of tagged on sort of to the end of that. Like I remember there was an article in Music Week, uh, I think September 1997, where so we were described as like one of Oxford's most s- significant new bands. Nice. So, so just and what, back of and what was the live experience like? Were you enjoying playing live? No. We were, we, we were generally not good live. I mean, basically, we had a lot of technology before the time when it was possible to really do that like, on stage because this was the sort of before the era of bringing a laptop on stage and having all the like the backing tracks on it like we sort of never had a live bass or a live drummer like the rhythms right. were like always programmed and um we tended to have a lot of effects pedals so like, we couldn't really move around very much like on stage because you had to stay within the the semicircle of effects pedals and uh, none of us were particularly demonstrative performers, I think it's fair to say. So, yes. yeah, so, so we were playing music that was difficult to reproduce like, on stage because of technological like, limitations. And we weren't, we weren't very charismatic. But, like, in the end, we ended up like, projecting slides over us so you couldn't see us. But, uh, yeah, I've, uh, I ha- have a couple of live tapes of us and it's pretty difficult to, to sit through. <laughs> Apparently, some of our gigs were actually good. Right. But it very much depends. 
but it very much depended on the the sound man whether the sound man had decided to make it sound like a horrible noise or not they yes. they were apparently the gigs that were better when we sounded noisy because you did a couple more sort of eps anti-cylon and then rounder which were both on matt's mm-hmm. label and then you did yes. another one which was uh, dark blue which was on kooky records yes from Kooky records of northampton yes yeah uh yeah, we we got asked by by sort of Kooky and by Shinkansen around the at the same time, like if we wanted to do singles. This was in the aftermath of, of Simple when it had become clear that even though we were hyped, we weren't going to end up on a major label. We weren't going to do particularly well. Um, this was largely because of the fact that people came, sort of came to see us live and then realised we weren't a good live band. Because sort of back in those days, it was still really important if you were an indie band that you would play live and that you had to be like good live so yes so uh, well i, I, I sort think of that was one of the reasons why we didn't really get anywhere yeah well looking back at that that kind of period <clears throat> you know I, I don't know probably the 60s and 70s but i can remember the 80s and 90s in a way that you know we had those three music papers weeklies which were obviously hugely important and then you had yeah. Yeah, John Peel, and then you had, I don't know, Janice Long and probably Steve, Steve Lamack. But then also every little town and city in the country had a, an alternative indie night, didn't they? And um, on most yeah. of Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday, I mean, Norwich had the Wild Club and, um, and yeah, I'm not going to go through around the whole country, but they all, everybody <laughs> yeah. had an indie night where at least 100. Yes, like it was always like early in the week when, to, when they couldn't yes. get anyone to, to turn up to the clubs otherwise. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and so you, you had all those kind of gigs and uh, it did help, you know, create that scene. And, and I guess you were at that point where, you know, playing live was, was kind of important for just selling yeah. t-shirts if nothing else so oh yeah we did we actually did have a few t-shirts made i think we only ever sort of printed about 10 of them so oh, sadly no. i don't own one i don't own one which i did yes yeah, great. Yeah. it was like a great piece of yeah a great piece of memorabilia they were all like extra large for some reason so i think, I think if i had worn one it would have just like been like a tent Trendy. on me actually there was yeah. a lot of baggy clothes in that period weren't there as well so yeah yeah you could kind of get away with it provided you didn't try to tuck it in yeah so when you went to record your first album which was steel point primer um yeah. you have all the material already rehearsed and ready to go before you went in the studio and what studio did you use uh well by that point we used no studios um like Dark Blue and, and like Anticyclone were, were like recorded in a proper studio, like as was simple. But so by the time we got to, to the, the first album, lo and behold, technology had actually come to our rescue. There, there, there was like home recording software that was actually good enough to run on, on like desktops. So, 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 so by that time, we were literally recording everything at, in steve or joe's front room or in my bedroom if i was recording my bits when when sort of they weren't weren't around so a lot the songs were all done the songs were, were all like well most of them were like rehearsed beforehand yeah. i think there was one song i think the last song lot on the album came along really late and it went straight from being written to being sort of recorded without being rehearsed but so sort of most of the rest of the album was was that was actually songs that we uh, played live yeah I think and, and nine was, out of the ten songs we had played live because there was that sort of mix didn't there? there was bands like air and then daft punk and stereo lab and you had that kind yeah. of yeah that kind of vibe who were all it who were all influencers on us air were one of joe's main influences when he first started writing songs for us yes like he was very keen that we would be a bit like air and, and then, he didn't get his way <laughs> you know we, we didn't sound very much like air but uh and what was they the, were always there in the background. And what was the reception like when the album came out? Um, muted, I feel. We got we got some some good uh, feedback and and like reviews from from like, online sites, but um, there wasn't a great deal of actual national press like about it. But Mixmag liked it, strangely enough. Yes. It's, we can't, yeah, we kind of seem to get sort of better press in the dance press than the indie press, which I never quite understood. But, you know, so I was quite happy to, to get along with with that. Well, I'd take what you can. But, um, yeah. yes, how many copies did that get, get? Did you, I suppose this is the t- days of just CD, wasn't it? 
It was. It was a, a CD-only release. I don't know how many copies got pressed, to be honest. I'm, I'm sort of never bothered asking Matt about that because like, we might find out how, how feeble our sales figures were. <laughs> but uh, like, they weren't totally terrible. Uh, I mean, like, we got royalty checks and everything. I mean, like, we got a royalty check last year for about 15 quid between four of us. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I don't know how many actually got pressed. It was probably in the low thousands, but I don't know for sure. Yeah. I mean, most of your material now is on on Bandcamp. Are people still discovering the band and and sort of, um, yes, enjoying them? Or is that that just come on Bandcamp or have you been on Bandcamp for quite some time? We've we've only been on there for about two months. Right. It's been one of those things that like I was thinking about doing for ages and then never got around to it. And then like Matt's decided he was going to do a, a lot of proper Shinkansen Bandcamp page so that he could link it to the, the, the Sarah Records Bandcamp page, which he'd done like, a long time ago. And yeah, so, so like I said, do you want a page as well? And I said, yes, that's the, that means I don't have to bother setting it up. So yeah, so, so, so Matt set up as a, a template and I put the, the, the artwork and the, Fantastic. the blurbs, the blurbs yeah. and the like, like on it. So we, we do still get listeners, like get a, a, like a monthly report and it's never gone down to zero listeners, but I don't know whether the listeners we've got are actually a lot of people who are already aware of the bands. Or yes. not. People love, I to, could, people mm. love scurrying around and finding new bands actually. This mm. is true. This is true. So once that album came out, was was there sort of general vibe within the group? You know, were you, I mean, obviously you weren't going to have this as a full-time job, but was it yeah. quite a commitment, you know, being the, you know, keeping the band going? We, well, we, we were all proud of at least some of the material on the album. Um, we would for like, we always thought we were good. We were always very aware of what our shortcomings were. I mean, people would always like criticise the, the vocals and we knew we weren't the best band ever vocally. Um, but like, I think because of the fact that we did get a fair amount of uh, criticism and that it seemed to be difficult for us to make headway, difficult for us to get people to actually pay any attention to us, that that, that strangely made us more determined to like carry on doing it yes. at the short run. Um, I think because we'd actually done an album which which we liked and which I still think now has got some some really good songs on it. That just meant that yeah, we we want to like carry this on. We've got a label that we like and like respect, and that like wants to put the album out. And like after the album came out, we knew Matt wants to put out more sort of material by us. So yeah, it was we were we were committed. So we were committed like to the band. We had a label that was committed like to the band. So we just thought we're just going to like carry on. Like even though by 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 that point things had got a little more difficult because we didn't all live in the same place like, anymore. Because when, yes. when, to, when to, we were recording Still Point Primer, we all still still like lived in Oxford. So we could theoretically have all gathered together in a room and like rehearsed the songs, which, which we were doing up until the point that we started uh, recording them. But by the time the album came out, uh, we didn't all live in Oxford anymore. So there wasn't any real like, opportunity for us to work uh, well, to jam, to be a jam band, we sort of, no. you know, definitely couldn't have. So when you went to when you went to put distant the follow up distant learning together, um, obviously there was going to be issues to do with not being in the same locality. Um, mm. Did you know when you were doing that album that that was probably going to be the final, you know, the final release by the band? No, no, we definitely didn't think that at the time. Um, we'd. Uh, no, we'd, we'd, we hadn't really given like any thought at all as to like how long we were going to like carry it on. We didn't think, oh, right, we're going to do three albums and then, you know, and then see what happens. It was really just an ongoing concern. Well, I think because we just had so much material coming out by, by like that point, like so much, like in terms of songs that were being written, because like Joe was still writing songs like John had started writing a lot of like material as well and sort of me and Steve to like a lesser extent so there was loads of songs coming out mm. I mean I'd I sort of found all the old uh, demo CDs uh, a lot a few weeks ago when I, when I was doing a bit of uh, archive searching right. and, yes, and, right. and I realized that we had but when we went into doing distance learning we probably had about 60 songs that we could have chosen so wow that's uh, yeah, very so, impressive so, 
so there was like, like there was no lack of of material there so was it the so, case then that you were recording your own bits around the country and then just sending them to one person who was that one person um well it it depended really on who the writer of the song was and sort of who had sort of taken the the, the lead in the arrangement really so yeah. so like they weren't all mixed by by sort of one person though, though like we obviously all have like final say i mean so I, th- I think Steve mixed some of the songs, Joe mixed some sort of definitely. I didn't because I, I wasn't au fait with the mixing software at, at like that time. But well, sort of what would happen is that like whoever had sort of taken charge of the mixing for that song would sort of do their mix of it. They'd sort of send it around to all of us and we would sort of critique it or would give it a, a thumbs up. And so the, the final mixes would be the result of us all sending emails around saying, oh, I don't like that bit of filtering on the... The first verse, could you turn that down? Oh, I, th- I think guitar needs to be louder. You would say that because that's you playing it. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. I can't hear the keyboard on this. <laughs> you know? yes. So yeah, so so like the mixes would go round in circles until sort of some things came up that we were all happy with. Yeah, the eleven tracks. And when you sent it to Matt, was he pleased? Did he did he sort of have to uh, kind of okay it as well? Um, yeah, I, I mean, like, I don't think he would have released it if he didn't like it, if he didn't think it was up to scratch. You know? I mean, like, because he's, he's not a record company boss who puts contracts into bands' hands. Like, everything was literally just a, you know, like an email handshake. I mean, he, he had not made any legal commitments to release the music. We had not made any legal commitment to even give him it. Kind of like any music so uh, it was a case of we would send it to him and like if he liked it then uh, then then he would put it out and thankfully thankfully he he sort of did like it we kind of disagreed on what the single ought to be but like that was about the only disagreement that we had yeah and who mm. designed the album cover uh that was steve 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 did all the artwork for like all of our uh, releases he was the real graphic design guy out of the band yes what's what's the, what's symbolic about this building I don't know, to be honest. I, th- I think it's in Berlin. I think Steve, Steve was very into architectural photography at the time. And I think he liked the fact that like, when he turned it on its side, it wasn't immediately clear what it was. Right. Um, nice. We, yes. And then what was the reception like when the album came out? Um, I kind of feel that it disappeared into a void. It got less press than than uh, Steelpoint Primer did, and it was it was it was quite difficult to buy it in shops as well, which I thought was a bit sad. Right. Because, uh, yeah, you couldn't get it in like any of Oxford's record shops, which I thought which I thought was a was a bit unfortunate. I mean, when, a bit when, yeah, when when sort of Steelpoint Primer came out, I was still working at the Virgin Mega Store in in, in like, Oxford, so that I could make sure that they stopped Cody's releases. Yeah. But sort of, but but sort of by the time of of like distance learning and sort of moved out of retail and I'd just given up on it and do my head in a bit too much. <laughs> so I was working in like in like a totally different area of work and so I couldn't ah, so I couldn't influence buying uh, decisions made by our local music shops. Yeah. So, so was it after that release, did you have a band get together to did you tour this at all? Did you sort of play many live shows at this stage? No well 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 we we didn't play like any shows for 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 distance learning because by the time that that album came out, not only were we not all in Oxford anymore, we weren't all in in the UK like anymore. John was living in in like Italy by the time that the album came out. So, right, and um, I think Steve Steve was up in Glasgow. Um, like me and Joe were 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 still in Oxford, and I know shortly after Stillpoint Primer came out we tried playing a couple of gigs just as a, a two-piece with like backing tapes yes just to try to like promote the album but that just didn't work very well at all i don't i think we only did two gigs in that that configuration and it really it was obvious like to us on stage i think to the audience that that was not working so we didn't bother doing it, it so um, yeah so so like after that we yeah we never played live anywhere yes did you but after that did you ever get together again to say to meet up, or was it just a, a series of emails that went round? It really was at that point, just like 
it's a lot of email communication. Yeah, this is before we even had Zoom. You say so? Like no, my God, this. Zoom. Zoom yeah. was only last year. No, it was just a sort yeah. of rather sad little ping. Really, wasn't it getting excited? We don't do emails anymore, do we? Um, <laughs> like I do sometimes, just for, for like, just for old times' sake. <laughs> yes, it's always like a postcard, isn't it? When you see an email, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So did so did the band officially finish then in sort of? O two or O three. Well, we actually got to the point of starting to record a third album. Oh which, my god! Like, you know, like despite the fact that 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 like distance learning didn't really get a lot of recognition, we were like really really proud of it. I thought, well, I think it's the best thing that 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 we did, and uh, and like I know Matt liked it. It sort of didn't sell as well as the the first album, but it still sold. We still mm. had people that were. You know that were keen on what we were like doing. We like we thought we'd done a, you know, a really good album, and it seemed a bit churlish to just pack it in at like that point because we thought, well, maybe it'll get picked up on. Maybe if the third album yes. sort of does well, people will start picking up on the older stuff. But um, yeah, we we made some 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 decisions about how how to approach the third album that probably in retrospect were a bit. Um, not really the decisions that we ought to have made in sort of terms of uh, changing the sound and like stripping it down a bit and sort of going for more, more sort of intricate, complicated songs rather than more kind of linear sort of groove based things, which we've done in the, in the, the past. So we started recording these songs and while I thought it was still a good set of songs it just didn't really work. It just wasn't coming together. I sort of didn't feel, um, and I know that I wasn't the only member of the band that felt it wasn't really sort of coming together. We had a good set of songs, but I just couldn't see how they were going to be made to work as, as group recordings really. And, and like, because, they were going off in a slightly different direction from what we were doing before. It sort of wasn't like a logical progression from the distance learning music to the music for the, the third album, which I never got as far as having a working title. Um, I and at least sort of one of the member of the band thought that if we carry on doing this, we'll end up with an album that like will get even less less attention than what we had before and it was just like pissing in the wind really like do we like do we really want to put so much like effort into this and just like feel that we're just getting nowhere with it so yeah that that was the point when we had i suppose a kind of email band meeting where it was i think two and a half one and a half in sort of favor of just packing it in at that point there were two of us that thought it was worth finishing one like one of us was sort of keen to like carry it on and like another was like I don't really mind one way or the other. So, yeah. So, so, so it was uh, Jan- January two thousand and two. I think was when we made that that uh, decision. So we we had got some some like, unfinished recordings for the the third album, but it sort of never got to the stage of being like almost finished. It sort of didn't even get to the stage of being halfway finished. Oh no. But, yeah, but but I've but I've still got demos of all the songs. So like, so like we might at one point go back and finish it. And yes. People can just like go. How did they fit so many jazz chords into that? <laughs> Is it the case? Have you still kept in touch with each other? Yeah, yeah, we're 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 sort of still in touch, definitely. Yeah, I mean, not not like super regularly, but um, yeah, we we'll we all still. Have sort of funny enough like email conversations sort of rather than like any other <laughs> that's a classic. format because we're old-fashioned yeah i know just so quaint but have you did you sort of was that the end of your musical kind of moment so to speak um so it was the end of mine yeah I'd, i sort of didn't carry on making music at like that point i actually went back to to writing about it i sort of moved back to to writing sort of started doing like reviews and Sort of pieces for like online magazines around that time. Yeah, um, yeah. I know, I know. Sort of some of the other members carried on sort of doing music. But, uh, like Steve is still in the band now, funnily enough. But, wow. mm, really yeah, yeah. What bands but, here? Um, Warm Digits. Are you aware of them? They're 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 doing reasonably well at the moment. They're they're a kind of. 
I suppose an electro noise disco band from uh, Newcastle. Oh, yeah. They've done about like two or three albums. They've done, yeah. Warm distance, yes, there you go. They're all there. Mm. Yeah. There you go. So, yeah, so anyway, but there, you know, at least you were in a band. You did singles. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've sort of probably made this sound like it's a, a tale of, you know, like Cody doing lots of things that we were proud of and no one paying, you know, paying any attention to it. But so it kind of didn't really feel like, like at the time that sort of that was what the trajectory of our story was. It wasn't like, oh, no, we're just constantly on a hiding to, to nothing, you know, hitting brick walls and that. And I mean, it didn't really feel like that until the, the, the very end. And I, and I think it's only when, when I look back on it now that I realise, oh, yeah, we didn't get very much press for the albums and like we couldn't play live and like, you couldn't buy the records in Oxford. So sometimes maybe I dwell a bit too much on the, 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 the negative like, aspect rather than saying we made two albums that I think are really good. Yes. So, and, uh, and and song called August, which is obviously a perfect one to play right. during this time of year, anyway. So indeed, mm. yeah. Well, I, I'm so pleased. Well, thank you ever so much. I mean, if just lastly, I mean, if it was something that you could have said to your your 16 or 18 year old self starting out, mm. you know, is there any kind of words of wisdom that you would have imparted on them and just said, oh look, I would I would do that or I wouldn't do that or you know, I just wonder if there was any anything that kind of stands out in your mind. Um, I would probably say you could dress a bit better, mate, <laughs> to, to start with. And also, I suppose I would probably tell myself to not think that like the indie scene is the only thing in your life. So to make sure that you live a fuller life than just hanging around in the indie scene like, all day. So it was great fun, absolutely fantastic, but... Uh, but <laughs> But I think by the time that I got to the 1990s, I thought there were some aspects of my life where I was a bit behind with it. I thought, oh, I should have done a bit more about that in 86. Like learning to play guitar properly, for instance. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. If you're still listening, well done if you are. Anyway, that was me in conversation with Chris Ty from Coda and much, much more. Um, This has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, lucky you, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived, so you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. These are the interviews. And um, if you do contact me, keep it positive and nice. Otherwise, you know, frankly, Mr. Shankly, Don't bother. But look, have a great week. Stay safe and all the best.